Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. For those of you relatively new to CWCW, let me say at the outset that I'm a Nancy Giles groupie. I've had the pleasure, joy, and honor of having more than one conversation with this talented actress, voiceover artist, commentator, and all-around classy broad. And I'm so excited that she's back albeit remotely, thanks to COVID-19. Since 2003, Nancy's been a contributor to CBS Sunday Morning, my most favorite show, where she has shared her views, both comedic and cunning, winning an Emmy and a pair of Gracies for her commentary. She currently is the host of the podcast, The Giles Files. And back in the day, she co-hosted an award-winning radio show with CBS correspondent Erin Moriarty. Nancy's wonderful voice can be heard on a myriad of commercials. She's also the voice of the Food Network. And not for nothing, I am convinced she could sell ice in winter. For three years, she was a regular on TV's China Beach, and her movie roles range from working girl to big. Nancy's appeared off-Broadway and won a Theatre World Award for her off-Broadway debut in the musical Mayor. There's so much more to share about Nancy, including the honorary doctorate of human letters she received from Grinnell College in 2014, where she also delivered the commencement address. But that's enough for now. So Nancy, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, and it's so, so lovely latest to talk to you. It's always great seeing you. I want to start with, how are you doing? You know, it's been, uh, it's been weird, just like it's been for everybody. Among other things, this mask situation, which I understand, (laughs) and I do it, but like, I like seeing people's faces. And, And on top of some, sometimes just in the course of walking around and meeting somebody's gaze and smiling, I'm still sort of looking at people in the eye, but I can't tell. Are they smiling? Are they frowning? What's going right, on? Right. You know, I, I like talking to dogs because I still miss my late dog. And dogs are like, get away from me. They don't like the mask. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And I mean, I'm being kind of funny about it, but the human loss has been just staggering. And it's not been an easy time, but I'm still here. And I tell you what's happening now with these marches and protests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. on the heels of George Floyd's murder, right. uh, which was just painful and ugly and, and mean. I mean, mm-hmm. I've lived through a lot of these. Right, right. I was watching a show on MSNBC, and they were mentioning people that were marching in Brooklyn, and they mentioned, I think it was the, the brother of Clifford Glover. Clifford Glover oh. was a young black child that was murdered in Queens, not too far from where I live, in 1973, 10 years old, he and his father were out walking and got stopped by plainclothes cops who decided that they were, they fit the description of some possible robbery suspects. They didn't identify themselves as cops. This is my memory of it. The two of them ran, and of course, the 10 year old child was shot and killed in the yes. back. Yeah. So, police brutality and police uh, extra energetic enforcement of crimes or suspicions on people of color. It's not new, but maybe the combination of all of this loss from COVID-19, the hit to the economy with so many people out of work, the fact that a lot of the people that are getting hit the hardest are people of color. Sure. The fact that a lot of the medical personnel that are getting hit the hardest are people of color. The fact that the essential workers that still are working through all of this in many cases, delivering food, ringing up food as a cashier, are people of color, and that so many people have nothing to do. They don't have a job to go to right now. I think the combination that's getting people activated and getting them marching and on the streets and holding up signs and, and participating in this of all races, I feel a glimmer of optimism. I feel a glimmer of hope. I really do. And, and I haven't felt that really since the day after the election in 2016. Mm. It's gotten gloomer and doomer with that man in office. And now I feel like as horrible as this all is, maybe this is the spontaneous convergence of hell in a way <laughs> that, that, that's getting people not only out and marching, but more than ever before, Sandy, I'm hearing people talk about, we're going to carry this passion to the election. We're going to vote. We're going to take it to the ballot box because that's the connection that I hadn't seen in the past. I've seen the marching. I've seen the sign holding. 
And then it can be crickets when it comes to election time. And I, I feel like maybe this time that won't happen. So is it almost as if to say it's the means to the end and the end of what we, what maybe. many of us hope for? Yeah, it's just who would have thought, who would have dreamed it would take these means? I mean, mm-hmm. how, you know, how this guy can look at him. So I'm not going to mention his name. I no, I, I, like yeah, it. right. But yeah. how that man with the bad hair and the big gut can actually find people to say that he's doing a good job or convince himself that he's done all these great things with 110,000 people dead. Mm-hmm. You just, it's just like that in and of itself. I, I'm stumped. I'm staggered. You know, I think every day there's something else. And listen, I'm not saying yeah. anything new about this. You're not saying anything new about this. But I think I have to tell you, I watched Becoming on Netflix. Okay. And I didn't expect this to happen. I'm what, just a few minutes into it, and I feel this incredible emotion. And oh I'm sitting gosh. by myself watching TV, and I, I started to cry. And what did I, why was I crying? Well, I was crying for several reasons. Did I not, did I not appreciate her when she was in office? I mean, when she was this the is, first lady and did everything that, you know, that she did and worked for. This is and, the Michelle Obama documentary. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. yes. Hello. Yeah. For those who, yes. No, no, no. That's about okay. time I became. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> and the other reason for the emotion was what we don't have. And that, <sighs> that to be enveloped by this woman, Michelle Obama, and separate from watching her interact with these young women and what a natural act it is for her. Somebody did say to me who watched it, enough with the signing of the books. I said, well, what do you think of book signing is, you jackass? And the fact <laughs> is, and not for nothing, all these people who are lined up to have her autograph the book, she's engaging with yes, them. So yes. shut the hell up. You I know? know. We've all seen book signings where either the books are pre-signed or someone has their head down and just hands <laughs> right, you a book. Right, right. No, it doesn't seem to be in Michelle Obama to do that. I went to one of the evenings um, at uh, NJ Pack when she talked about the book and talked about her life. And even though she didn't take questions from the audience or anything like that, she was so engaging and so personable. Right. And what an amazing story, you know? I mean, I can't, there's no comparison. I've seen on Twitter people talk about the current first lady and how she's the classiest, best first lady we've ever had. Because and I think, why? Be, yeah, I think because why? Because be best while your husband oh, is be the best. Biggest, oh, her, yeah. While your husband is the biggest bully in yeah, the, really, in the, hello. There's know, a pot the calling hemisphere. The and, and what else have you done other than walk around in spike heels? I, I don't. <laughs> I don't see anything. Mm-hmm. And Michelle Obama, they're, they're, they're tremendous people. And I can understand why they're loved so much and hated so much because they're just tremendous, giving, wonderful people with a great story and hardworking and came not from means and just excelled. Mm-hmm. And I guess for a lot of people that want to think that people of color get where they get because of some charity or affirmative action right. or something, as simple as that, or they're taking away from somebody else. Yeah, you kind of can't say that about those two. For you sure. You kind of can't ever say that, but, you know. Well, I think also what strikes me is the fact that um, on some level, it's not about me because I'm at the other end of my life. You know what I mean? It's about my sons and it's mm. about the, the 40 and 50-year-olds as well as the teenagers. Mm-hmm. You, and I'm not saying mm-hmm. that in a macabre sort of way. What are you doing to that end? How are you making all of this work for you? Well, emotionally, I think I, to start with, I'm stoking a lot of resentment towards my friends who are accomplishing a lot during this time because I feel like I've mostly been sitting around staring into space going, uh, and looking for reruns of Law and Order. But having said that, you know, I'm trying. I mean, I've been thinking and writing when I can, and but it, and in a bigger way, you know, we t- we talked already about how things being at such a low point might be the motivating factor to get people out in the streets. But in another sense, this kind of forced stillness has been really interesting. I've been doing some meetings on Zoom, and I I had to do some stuff for Sunday morning, and and actually got out and interviewed people, but. There's been a lot of time to kind of think about what's coming next and appreciate things like a hug and a handshake and appreciate things like being outdoors and, and start to I'm hearing things a lot more like birds. And I think all of it, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, think I do. I do. Yeah. Things having to be a bit more 
quiet. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question at all. It might be my very clever way of stalling, trying to think of something clever to say. It's what so. you're thinking. It's what you're feeling. It's I just, weird. I'm not always motivated. I'm not always like, and sometimes I'm just sitting and thinking. And I tell you, my shrink said, don't watch the news all the time. I mean, when the, when the pandemic was really at its height and we were seeing the task force or whatever the heck you want to call that, those task force things every day. You mean Fauci and uh, Burks and you right, know, whomever? Right. Uh-huh. Fauci, who at least made sense, but comparing what was going on in the afternoons to hearing Governor Cuomo in the morning. He's not even my governor. I live in New Jersey. But um, the New Jersey governor was also very good. Now I'm forgetting his name. Murphy. 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 Oh, I'll tell you something about him that I find so touching. Every day when he was talking about things, he meant he used the phrase precious lives lost and he and he referenced people who who always residents yes always uh-huh. not yeah. you know not not well-known people just of people. course yeah and uh-huh. he's, he's been so so thoughtful and caring as has uh cuomo in different kinds of ways again it's so it's such a strange contrast to the president who has he's never really said anything other than I, I just don't know how people can be built that way. I don't even know how the harshest person on earth could see what's happening in this country and all over the world and not feel some compassion. But Sandy, everybody's not the same, I guess. I don't know. And as a woman of color, have mm-hmm. you felt this need to get out there on some level to say how you're feeling, considering you've been a commentator on MSNBC in the past and, and you have strong and Sunday morning, what might be in your heart? I have. And in other ways, I haven't. I wrote a note to my boss at CBS and about some of the things that I was feeling, but I also wrote him and said, I read an incredible column by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It was a couple of Sundays ago in the LA times. Uh I sent it to my boss and I said, look, in past, I might've said, I want to say this and that and the other, but what Kareem said was so on point Think about maybe bringing him on or I want to interview him. So I sort of pitched that. I don't know whether anything will come of it. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I, there are a lot of people that have been saying what I've been feeling. And I guess in a way that's gratifying. Like I don't feel, I think in past I might have felt like, oh, I wanted to be the one to say X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of great voices out there that, are, that can articulate things that I'm feeling even better. I mean, Joy Reid on MSNBC is doing a great job. Um, there's another a woman on Morning Joe a lot that's, that's very, very smart. There's a lot of people mm-hmm, out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I feel like the feelings that I have are being represented. And here and there, I've talked to friends. I've had some very, very heartfelt, and I don't even know what to say, notes from friends of mine, white friends, that I've had for years mm-hmm. or, or are saying, you know, I... I, I feel stupid even writing, but I just want you to know I'm thinking of you. And, I'm, and I'll tell you what, Sandy, the one common thread in some of these notes that I've gotten from friends is I understand that I can never understand. Yeah. And in yeah. that sense, yeah. that's, that's huge. Some of that, even those thoughts aren't even things that I could have really properly articulated, except I know in some cases with very close friends, you know, we would kind of go at it a little right, bit. Right, right. But the, the the understanding that they can't understand, that to me is is huge. It doesn't mean that we don't all share universal feelings. Of course not. We all can't feel uh, compassion for what's going on. But that basic comprehension of not getting, not being able to get it ever, it's, that's, that's a big sea change. That's a big sea change. You know, I was thinking about that personally, Mm -hmm. as June is Gay Pride Month, and not only COVID, but obviously Black Lives Matter issue. Mm -hmm. And I was reflecting my life. Uh, There are definitely, I have family members who are are part of the LGBTQ community. I have interviewed several transgender women. This is a safe space, my podcast for people of all different stripes. But here's what struck me in a way that I guess I knew, but almost like with the Michelle Obama thing, I knew, but I didn't really know. I so can't walk a mile in their shoes because I don't really think I've ever experienced discrimination. And the only time that that kind of rises to the occasion was when I was a freshman at Ohio University. What what a mistake that was. And I I went... 
He went to Ohio. Yes, University. but no. you're smarter than I am. There's no oh, way stop I could have gotten into it. Oberlin. So Please. I mean, it was by default that I went there. And <laughs> so it's Athens, Ohio. And I used to tell people I, I go to school in Athens. Let them think, you know, they yeah, could have so probably come up with Georgia for that matter. Leave but, the Ohio part out. But anyway, right, exactly. Yeah. But I only spent my freshman year there. But oh. what I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. But I'll never forget this one line. So freshman year, the dorm room was triple bunks. Okay. And that was, is that not a hazard? But anyway, so my, both of my roommates were from the state. And one of them, Connie Grebitz's mother, as we're being introduced, said to my mother in front of me, oh my goodness, Sandy is the first Jewish person that Connie's ever met. And it was just kind of, that was that was never said. And I thought, so what, you know what I came up with? I can't believe I came up with this. I said, how crazy is that? Connie is the first Lutheran person <laughs> I've ever met. See, that's funny. You know? But my only point is I have not walked a mile in these people's shoes. Well, my feet are rather large. So I, well, I have I, large yeah. feet too. So that's why I what said What size it. shoe do you wear? Come on. Tell, I'll tell you. I'm a 12. My feet okay, have gotten I'm bigger. A I'm okay. a 10. Okay. And you're how and you're uh five seven and a half. However, I'm starting to shrink. I know, but I'm that's, getting older. And did your feet grow when you were a kid? That's when it happened to me. I was wearing a lady size nine in fourth grade. You may have me beat by a year yeah. or two, but I but mean I can rough. go to the mat with you. I about know, that. I know, that's yeah. rough. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm going off and the tens always sold fastest and yeah. Anyway. Or they never had enough. Or they never had enough. That's right. Um, you know, that experience of the first Jew. Okay. So let me tell you about that. When I was growing up in Queens, did you grow up in, in you grew up in New York, didn't you? Yeah, no, no Jersey. Jersey. Okay. So that's a shock to even hear that. I'm sure, you know, what that that's, you're the, I'm the first Jewish person. That's a, I mean, when I was growing up in Queens, I grew up in a part of, uh, Queens, uh, St. Albans, but there was, there used to be a racetrack in Jamaica and they built this, um, kind of progressive co-op housing called Rochdale village. And there were a lot, it was very, very integrated and very mixed. And all the white kids that I met when I went to school were Jewish. They're all Jewish. So I thought, except for on TV, everybody that was white was Jewish. That's how I grew up. <laughs> well, I guess you were in a shtetl of some kind. Uh, some right? sort of a, yeah, some, but um, I can remember going to college and meeting white kids who had never met a black person outside of maybe some sort of made housekeeper, support staff, something like that, and wanted to like touch my hair and were surprised that it was soft and all of that jazz. And I just, you know, was kind of like, what in the world is going on? I just felt that much more grateful at growing up in New York. But, um, you know, this whole concept of like the melting pot, I never liked that because who wants to melt and be every the same Mm -hmm. as everything else? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Better that there's like the salad of all these different ingredients, but we're in the same bowl kind of the acceptance pot, maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Not saying that we're all the same, but right. saying that we share experiences, but we're you know different individuals, and that we're all the same kind of way of thinking is, I think, where the mistakes have come in the past. Of you know, we've all suffered. I mean, I've gotten into some heated discussions with friends about it's embarrassing to say, but like, what was worse, the Holocaust or slavery or this I, or that, oh, the other? Okay. And it's yeah. like, no, no, yeah. no, no, mm-hmm. no, 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 mm-hmm. no. We don't mm-hmm. need to do mm-hmm. that. It's, there's separate horrible things that have happened. And don't forget Native Americans and how right. they This is were not victims. a competition. Right. They were victims of a, of a Holocaust mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. and we're the ones who came here as property. I mean, you know, you can't forget those things. But like I was saying before, the notion that people are saying, I can't understand, but I can have compassion. That's such a big step forward. That's such a big step forward that it almost makes me cry, you know? And I'm getting these notes. I mean, I'm getting it from friends, people who I, we've never even had these discussions. We're just, we've always been cool. But mm-hmm. these friends of mine are like seeing, finding something deep in themselves and they want to communicate. And it's really, it's really beautiful. And it's very touching to me. You know, when you brought up about interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, as you're, as you're oh, talking about, I would love to. Yeah, you should get him too, except you have to do a show about with men, I guess, then. Well, he'd have to wear a dress. Um, <laughs> but what's A very stri- large, long dress. <laughs> right. Yes. What anyway. strikes me about what you're saying is how personal would you like to get at a venue like Sunday morning? Would they provide that platform for you or would they think you're an angry black woman? Oh, that's such a smart question. Um, 
I guess the best way to answer that is when I first started on the show, uh, the first piece I did was in December of 2002. It was a zany piece about high heeled shoes being like a conspiracy against one women, but it, it struck a chord and was so funny and odd that they got great responses and they asked me to come back. And during George W. Bush's administration, which was when I first started, I really had pretty free reign. I don't think I was ever censored or anything like that for any of my ideas, because right along with a response uh, of something that was going on politically, I also wanted to do a piece about um, stretch fabrics, or I wanted to do, you know, I, I really felt like I could say whatever I wanted. So even, there was a give and take. They would there was all, a give and take, yeah. So you could, they could say, we'd I, like you to do this, and you could say, and I, that's great, and I would like to do this down the yes, road or whatever. Yes, okay. and, and they were almost always opinion pieces. Now, I have to tread carefully because I'm, I'm still there and I want to continue to be there. It's yeah. just, they brought on other people to do opinion pieces and it's been more challenging for me to get my opinions on the air. And this actually started, believe it or not, when Barack Obama was just a candidate, when he announced his candidacy and there were some things that I wanted to say, I felt a bit of a shift. Like it was like, I just felt a shift. And, and there were also times where some of the things that I wanted to do, yes, I did feel like they were viewed through that angry black woman mm -hmm. lens. Mm -hmm. But hey, you know what? Part of having opinions are that sometimes you're angry. And I am a black woman who can get angry. Sure. And in many ways, I think that's a strength. But it's been a, it's been a challenging road to hoe. And I'm not using the term hoe like <laughs> you a hoe, but in the original sense. And I realized as soon as I came out with that, that was going to be a problem. But anyway. I use that phrase all the time. Road to hoe. It's been challenging, Sandy. I won't lie. So, I've, so part of what I'm so gratified about having this podcast is I feel like I can say some of the things that I want. But what's funny about trying to do a commentary on or, or an opinion piece where I'm talking about stuff and you can't see me is it's harder. It's, it's harder for mm -hmm. me than doing a, mm -hmm. a televised commentary sure. where sometimes a, a facial expression or, you know, where I yeah, need it's not that. the word so much. It's how you look. Sure. And, yeah. and you know, and to that point in the Peloton piece, uh -huh. there are <laughs> even parts that you don't have to say anything. And it's like, I can bike a mile in your shoes there. And it's hey, just like, that's the thing about what you do there, oh. you know, whether it's, and frivolous meaning of Napoleon. No, no, way, no. No, you know? Sandy, I appreciate you saying frivolous because you know me and I know exactly what you mean. I mean, there are what I'm trying to do, and you really have helped me clarify this, even in a piece that's like about Peloton, which I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Um, and the piece is, that you I'm, did trying to buy a mattress? Right. <laughs> I'm trying to work some version of my opinions in there, even if it's not political, because I don't always want to talk about politics, but I do have, I, I'm opinionated about things. So I try to approach even some of these interviews in a commentary mindset so that who I'm interviewing, what I'm asking them will also like get, I, I, where I'm, I'm sort of getting myself, um, how do I put it? It's not that I'm inserting myself into the interview, but mm -hmm. I try to it's Let relating, my, isn't yes, it? It's yeah, relating. In some way, in some uh -huh. way, yeah. So that it's not just, and this is not to take away from people who just, who are really good interviewers. It's just sometimes, depending on who I'm talking to, I'm either really, really compelled or I really want to jump out of my skin because I'd rather be doing something else. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll say mm -hmm. it that way. The funny thing about Peloton is I... That was that we should tell. Let, let's for those who didn't see it, just give a little backstory of oh, what yes, this okay. was about. So, this was a piece about Peloton bikes, which are incredibly expensive and they were controversial at Christmas time. There, there was a commercial where a very and, and almost all their commercials everybody's like thin and fit, but a husband gave a wife uh, a Peloton for Christmas and she was like, Oh my god, and, and feeling like, Oh god, I better exercise. Like, she was the one that was out of shape and it got a lot of parodies and um, it was kind of reviled, but it, it really helped put Peloton get that much more attention. And with the advent of coronavirus, it's helped a lot of people who want to be working out and can't go to a gym because gyms mm -hmm. have been closed. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, producer called me and said, I'm thinking of doing a piece about that. Would you want to do it? And I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> and he said, they, they're going to offer you a loaner. And I was like, done. Let's yeah, do really. it. <laughs> They brought that sucker up the stairs, I think it was the first week in March, and then by week two, if you recall, right around St. Patrick's Day, everything's shut down. Mm -hmm. 
So I still had the loner during this whole time. <laughs> was that I, was it strictly like just going to be for a week kind of thing? I mean, no, it was always going to. Well, it was always going to be for a period of time because they their idea was. I mean, it's, you know, um, the, the segments take a couple of weeks normally to shoot, sometimes even longer. Sometimes it's over months. But um, I think we were supposed to get this piece done and on the air maybe it, within that month, month and a half. But everything sort of shut down, including the Peloton Studios. And I still had this bike. And they were like, you know, you, well, hang on to it. And so I started using it. And then I, and I'm still doing pretty well with it. And everything that I said in the piece is true. I've come to really, really like it. And when you're in news, you can't just accept gifts. That's like a course, big no-no. Of course. But I'm paying it off, paying off in you know, monthly installments and whatnot. And, and it is expensive, but it's, it's really- Well, I, that would be I, the I perfect endorsement if you were Peloton. You know, not that you, had, not that you were a cynic, but it's like, uh, you know, whatever. And now you're drinking their Kool-Aid. What Look, more could they want? I know? met the CEO who's a real stand-up guy. I mean, as CEOs go, he pays them- <laughs> They, they were getting an extra 100 bucks a day in hazard pay oh, for the delivery and stuff. That's fantastic. A lot of these other dopes like Jeff Bezos, he has these beautiful Amazon commercials where he's got everybody, you know, waxing lyrical about Amazon. Yeah, right. But I don't think they're getting sick pay. They don't get like the time. They're just treated like chattel. He's the, I can't bear him. But mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. met the CEO. He's great. Met my favorite instructor. She's like all that. She's as genuine as she is. On, on the screen. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I dig it. So I'm slowly, I can't say I'm losing pounds left and right. because But I'm you're not. a convert. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I dig it. Mm-hmm. But it is expensive. But I said to, uh, I can't think of John's last name, the CEO. I, I asked him if they were thinking of selling um, like certified pre-owned Peloton bikes. <laughs> <laughs> and he said in some cases they were. And he said, I think we're going to try to come up with a, a less expensive model because he really does... He wants people to, to be in shape and to be part of the whole community. So maybe that'll come out too. And if you add it all up, considering how expensive some gyms can be, mm-hmm. it works out value-wise, well, in, in about five years. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> but I well, think that's one is, positive thing. Yeah. For people who just don't feel like going to a gym and oh. if they want to use the bike at three o'clock in the morning yes. or nine o'clock at night, whatever yes. it might be, you're beholden to nobody. Nobody. You don't have to be in a gym next to, this is what always happened to me. I'd be next to somebody on whatever machine, male or female, and they're like, <laughs> yeah, and they're yeah. making all these noises and going twice as fast as me and I'm like oh my god and their saliva is pandemic notwithstanding <laughs> forget you know? it the yeah, saliva really. and the sweat that's right even pre-pandemic it was like exactly <laughs> you're taking a bath there Nancy I'm curious when you started out after mm-hmm. graduating and I believe you you did second city I did I did Chicago. that was that was like my first professional job outside of, no, that's what was my second. But anyway, and we yeah. did talk about this in the past, but for those people not in the know, and I ask this all the time of the women I interview, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? I didn't really, but what happened was senior year of college, Second City's touring company came and did a show. I, I loved performing, but I was, I was shy. I was not like part of a clique in high school or any of that stuff. And in college, I was sort of determined, I thought I wanted to act and I was determined to sort of do that. But even there, one of the requirements of the theater department was you had to be cast in a major role in a theater department production and I never could get cast. So I ended up majoring in creative writing, which is like majoring in steering into space. <laughs> Something about what I saw on stage was Second City. And I remembered watching Paul Sills Story Theater and, and I always loved SCTV and stuff. Mm-hmm. Something about what they did clicked in my head. And so I wrote what I thought was this brilliantly hilarious letter to Second City Theater. I wrote pretending that I was William Morris, the agent. I even signed the letter Billy. <laughs> and I uh-huh. described this great new talent, this unheralded talent, me. And I, you know, this whole, I just thought, you're so, I was so brilliant. This is great. And I, I sent the letter to them and I got a form letter back saying, yeah, we're not really hiring anybody, but we'll keep you on file. And I was like, oh, whatever. And then mm-hmm. I graduated college. I ended up working for this group called the Paper Bag Players. It was a job I loved, this children's theater oh, company. Oh, sure. I've heard of them, of course. Yeah. Well, the woman who runs it is, was, well, she's passed away since, but she was kind of nuts. And after, I, it was my first professional theater job and I was fired about a month in and it was just crushing because I loved it and, and I've been signing autographs and it seemed like the kids loved me and blah, blah, blah. And she fired me. 
And I, the day that I was fired, I came home and there was a letter from Second City in Chicago. I was living with my parents at this point, having graduated college, not knowing where I was going next, mm-hmm. saying that they were having auditions. This is a long story, but I'm going to try to truncate it a little bit. And I flew myself out to Chicago on People's Express, which was uh, this inexpensive airline. You could go to Chicago, I think, for $30 Jesus. or something like that. Uh-huh. Flew in for the day to audition. And I remember the two things that the producers said to me were, you flew in for this and you graduated college? I mean, <laughs> which I should have with this picture? Uh-huh. Right, I should have known there was something odd there. But I, I did this audition and then a few months later they hired me and I moved out to Chicago and kind of creating theater on my feet and getting suggestions and improvising. It fit where I was at that point. But what was happening though, this is the early 80s, in all the time at Second City, it wasn't really an, an integrated, diverse group. I mean, Diana Sands was in Second City. She, you know, she's a wonderful actress who died 40, 50 years ago. Uh, she was in the original Raisin in the Sun. They had about two black actors in 40 years. I was in the touring company. I couldn't seem to do the work that I wanted to do or be... Um, heard, maybe? Really being heard. And I wasn't getting a promotion into the main stage company. And I was very frustrated and I, I quit, but I wrote them a letter saying, this has to do with race. This is not right. They had a white actor that was playing Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago. Oh, glunk. And Michael Jackson's Thriller was the number one album in the country. There was all this stuff that I was trying to improvise and talk about and, you know, but they did me a real service because it spurred me into doing kind of clumsy stand-up comedy in New York. And then I found a group of people that I loved working with at um, the West Bank Cafe in in, uh, New York. It's a restaurant, but below the West Bank was a theater. And Louis Black and a wonderful man named Rusty McGee, they were doing these comedy shows on the weekends. And I fell in with them and sort of found uh, my kind of comedic, ish voice. Chops. You got your yeah. comedic chops. Yeah. So that kind of got me started. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I felt really comfortable on stage in front of people. And I loved this kind of sloppy expression and that opened the door to everything. So it kind of went like that. I didn't grow up going, I want to be a star, you know, when I was five years old with a microphone mm-hmm. or any of that jazz. Mm-hmm. We were very, yeah, we were a very lively family with lots of music and stuff like that, but I didn't really know. And as it turned out, even though I did do acting and theater acting and TV acting, what I do on Sunday morning when I'm expressing my opinions, especially, that felt more right than Mm -hmm. any of the acting that I did. And it meant more to me to have people say, I really like how you think, or I don't agree, but but you made me think. That was even more gratifying than people saying, I really liked you as Frankie on China Beach. Although that still is really, really great. Sure, sure. Well, it's a different level of connecting, isn't yeah. it? And it's much more personal. Mm-hmm. But I say this to a lot of the women I interview because it's true and it absolutely applies to you. There's that strong sense of self. Yeah. And that's a tie that binds the nearly 400 women I've interviewed. You know How? I mean? what? That's incredible. That well, they just keep coming and me. I just am so grateful. And whatever it was that propelled them, to, mm-hmm. to pursue or whatever, or change course, it really is so heartwarming, you know? I mean, yeah. so you fit into that category too. Whatever you might have had in terms of foundation with your family, you were not afraid. Well, I will say this though. I think I've become much less afraid because when I look back at myself, I mean, I, I took a stand at Second City. I certainly did. I wrote them a letter basically saying, I'm as good as anybody else and that you didn't promote me. That's racism, right, you know, right. goodbye, which was a big thing for me to do. But I really feel like literally and figuratively, I found my voice as I've gotten older, which is one of the reasons why I get so mad that older women get so sort of shoved to the side. It's not only ridiculous, it's dumb. We have so much more to say. Sure. You know, mm. there's so much more going on. I'm going to be 60 this year. And, mm-hmm. and you're the first person I think that I've said that to publicly. And it's not that I'm... Well, that's because I'm older than you like are. That. Oh, <laughs> sh- no, but you know what I mean? I, know, I mean, of course I do. I'm just And busting. you really yeah. do know what I mean. Because in this business, whether you're seen or not seen, whether it's your face or your voice or whatever, guys can go all the way up. You know, they've got 
15, 20 more years where they're still considered viable. But for women, it, it starts changing. And it doesn't make sense because we have so much more to say and so much more to offer as we get older. And I'm not putting down young women. Everybody is young. We were young. but Of course. Come on, we bring so much. I feel like I act better now. Mm -hmm. I'm more raw on now. I've had some losses that I didn't have when I was in my 20s or 30s or 40s, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a a bigger, more fuller, more full bad grammar. My grammar (laughs) still isn't that good. Um, uh, It's a bigger picture that we Mm -hmm. have to draw from, you know? So there is that. That's something that women across the board share, Mm -hmm. of color or, or otherwise, that the age crap that happens. That's not so nice. Yeah. But you know, what's also interesting about this in terms of your successful voiceover career, because that's a complete other ball game, right? Yeah. No one sees you. Your voiceover person is invisible. And I mean, you've sold a lot of stuff. I have not as much lately, but yeah, but I will say in theory, you're right. It is your voice and that's all you're being judged by, which made it easier when I wasn't, when I was rejected, but I had I still have the same agents that I've had for 34 years. Cunningham, CESD is the agency. They believed in me and they pushed the envelope and would send me on voiceover auditions where they asked for men's voices. They would send me on things that weren't necessarily just for African-American black voices or whatnot. And they really, by presenting me to casting directors and to clients, they really helped open that door for a lot of people. I mean, I hear all kinds of voices now. And when I was first starting, it was different. I mean, it was a lot different because even though, yeah, as you said, you're just being judged on your voice, there would be times where I would get a job, I'd be in the studio and people, clients would come in and jump when they saw me thinking I was in the wrong place. There There were times when I was auditioning for things and I'm in the waiting room and some of the other auditionees, uh, mostly, you know, Caucasian would look at me and, and say, I don't know if you're in the right place. You know, this is, <laughs> this is the Kame audition. Afrosheen is up the hall. Oh, come on, man. Thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I would go, no, I'm in the right place. And in my mind, I would go and watch this. I'm going to book that job. Yeah. I'm going to get it. And, yeah. And I would, and I would. So everything has evolved. And now the biggest challenge isn't even age or race. It's union versus non-union because there's a lot of non-union work going on now. Non-union work that pays very little. And with the computer and with everybody's availability to get microphones, a lot of companies are just going for people all over the country who can just do a little audition or do a little job and they pay them much less or they're paying celebrities, lots of money. Yeah, that's kind of a new trend where it's, yeah. you know, the bold-faced names are, yeah. are, you know, selling cars and, yeah. and all that other stuff. That's and a Sandy, I wouldn't mind. I mean, you've got a beautiful voice. I wouldn't mind if all of them had great voices because there have been over the years some really great voices that were also famous people. Burgess Meredith had a great voice. Tammy Grimes. I can think of others. But some of the people, I don't even, I don't know who they are. Someone has to tell me, oh, that's, you know, that's John Hamm from, from Mad Men. I uh-huh. wouldn't have known, but I don't want to begrudge people, but this is where I get angry because yeah. I'm upset because I have so many talented friends who aren't famous. Who and are being marginalized. Voices. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, what's weird is I can do whatever voiceovers I want, even though I work for CBS News. They've given me free reign to do that. And I want to be, I want to get my voice in support of some of the candidates that I like. But I never can get those auditions. But the people that have routinely tried to get me are Republicans. And I won't do it. Uh, In 2004, the the Republican convention was here in New York City. And I was offered the gig of being the voice of the convention, like there at Madison Square Garden. I was like, ew, no. (laughs) I mean, it would have paid a lot, but I thought- Are you nuts? Yeah. No. Oh, I will say this. I'm glad I brought that up because this is an interesting thing that's happened with me. I have respect now for- Republicans that I didn't have respect for in the past, because I think this current crop that are in politics now with, with basically no exceptions are so vile. I can now appreciate things like, well, Colin Powell and and other people. I appreciate, Mm -hmm. I even appreciate Nixon. Nixon had major issues, but he was for universal health care. I mean, he was nuts, but I feel like he respected 
the office of the presidency way more than this guy does. Mm -hmm. And he was surrounded by people who respected the office and respected politics enough to go, we think it's time for you to go. This guy and his little enablers, starting with like Mitch McConnell, it's been horrific. But maybe that's another thing that needed to happen for for people to not just be divided Republican and Democratic. Maybe because this crop is so bad, when when it's over, I can I'll be able to appreciate other people who might have something important to say who might be Republican. I'm sorry. That trailed off into nothing. No, no, no. no. I got, that and trailed to that, off because I'm thinking, wait, but who? Who would that be? You know. <laughs> well, to that point, I was reading an article in today's Times. I'm not going to quote the headline correctly, but as if the current president was trying to channel Nixon, like you're referring, but is actually, it's more George Wallace. <laughs> the law and order part? That, um, that he's quoting that? or what? So, Yes, exactly. And mm-hmm. the lack of compassion. And <laughs> no pun intended here. Everything is just so black or white. It's so crazy that I, I wonder who is it exactly that supports him? And I guess if, if, if you're somebody that hates in the similar way, then that's your guy. Because I can't find, I, I just can't find it. I don't know. And I hope that uh, the people that I agree with more don't keep killing the good for the perfect and mm-hmm. will actually show up and vote. Oh, I mean, the way that people were acting in the 2016 uh, run-up to the election, even Democrats and independents and progressives, there were so many purity tests going on and so much hyperbole. It, it almost drove me completely off of Facebook. I had to cut it off because the, the things that were going on, and a lot of people didn't even realize they were being influenced by Russia, by these strange conspiracy theories and fake videos and bots and stuff. I mean, I still have been talking people up the cliff going, yeah, no, the Clintons didn't have a a, a sex ring, a child sex <laughs> ring going on. That really, that just it really didn't happen. Yeah, okay? yeah. So, you know, stop it. But anyway. Well, that's also like kind of pushing a rock up a hill. Although I, maybe, I maybe it's a rock as opposed to a boulder. I know. If, I also asked this question, and I'm going to ask it of you. If I was your fairy godmother, what would you ask of me professionally what at 60 have you not done that you would like to do or continue to do? Oh, that's such a, you know, wow. I, I, it's funny. I think 10 years ago it would have been a completely different answer. Um, I'm, I'm almost kind of doing it. And it's similar to what, what you're doing, what I'm doing, because I, I love the podcast. And it's the Giles Files, by the way, and it's on Apple. If you have the Apple podcast. Do you have thing. guests? Or are you, are you, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've had guests and I also do parody songs. And we also sometimes strange, bizarre poetry and little stream of consciousness things. On one of the episodes, when we talked to these high school students, I also read from my old diaries and stuff. And just as a juxtaposition, I mean, it's all it's all over the place and I love it. But I tell you, the one thing about the podcast that I miss is um, when I worked on radio and we had a chance to talk to viewers, you know, get phone calls and whatnot. I love radio. I really, really, really love that. And I've had really wonderful luck with TV and, and yeah, I would love to be in a hit movie and whatnot, but I don't care about that as much as um, doing something like radio, like what we're doing here, having great conversations with people. And the only thing I would add to that is playing music that I wanted and it wouldn't have to be any kind of a format and then opening the phone up to guests. I could be very, very happy with a weekly show, or I did the five-day-a-week thing because I was on with Jay Thomas. Um, right. God, right. it's been 20 years. Golly, Moses. I did that morning drive, which is 6, a, six to 10 a.m. Oh, t- talk to me about that. It's I mean, I spent most of my You know, that's get, Yeah, on the road at 3 a.m., yes. Oh, my God. And I was still doing stand-up at night and, oh, and trying to do a voiceover. I mean, I was 20 years younger, so I was able to pull it off. It's still not easy. It's not easy, but I do love being uh, having that thread of connection to people that are listening to you right then. And there's nothing like that. So I think that's really about the only thing. And if you were my fairy godmother, you would help me organize my very funny stories over the last 30 years into some sort of a little uh, book of essays. Book of, yeah, I, w- I always dreamed of being a published author and I have the material. I just haven't had the wherewithal to sit down and organize it. So those are the only two things. And I'll tell you, if, if either didn't happen, I'd still be okay because I've gotten wonderful feedback from people about the stuff that I've done. And I'm fine. I'm really fine. You know? Well, I think a good word to describe 
your career in a positive way is eclectic. It is very. I love that. It is. And it was kind of eclectic uh, out of necessity. Whatever. (laughs) Where I thought I might have wanted to have my own sitcom or an hour-long HBO special that led to this or that or the other. It didn't really creak that way. I auditioned for The Daily Show and didn't get on. I auditioned for Saturday Night Live and and wasn't hired. Um, But I had the experience with Second City, which was life-changing. It got me thinking on my feet. It helped me connect the fact that improv is writing. Because in my mind, I thought to be a writer, you had to look like Jane Fonda playing Lillian Hellman in Julia. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had to be a chain smoker that was at a typewriter staring off. And then I would walk along the beach with Dashiell Hammett. And then I'd call him up and go, Dash, I've got a great idea for a play. It's called <laughs> The Little Foxes. You know, that's what I thought writing was. I didn't realize that if I, if I talked and taped it and then transcribed it and looked at it, that was writing too. So Second City did me a great, great service. And the other things, it was just me trying to make a living, you know? Mm-hmm. Since my voice, I was able to do voiceovers, I was grateful to do that. And I did, you know, some voices on uh, cartoons and stuff like that. And I got a chance to work on a show called Fox After Breakfast with Tom Bergeron. And they hired me at first as the announcer. And then they ended up having me do segments. And then I started interviewing people and yada, yada. And it was all interesting. So it's really going where I was able to make a living. And mm-hmm. which I think, I mean, I feel lucky because if I was just a regular actor hoping that a part that I auditioned for would be right for me, I would have been sunk. Yeah. In fact, even yeah. China Beach, under normal circumstances, I don't think I would have gotten that job, but there was a writer's strike that summer. And I had done a show at Manhattan Theater Club and I gotten really good reviews. And when they came to meet me, they couldn't even offer me a script. They were, you know, because of the strike. So I just sat down and talked to them and they rolled the camera. Wow. And then they kind of cobbled together a sort of script-like thing based on some of the stuff that I said. And that was how I auditioned in front of the network. And that's how it happened. I'm not really good with those TV and film interviews. I'm, I just kind of suck. At well, that. that obviously was serendipitous. Yes. Don't you think? I yeah. think so. Yeah. And as a woman, it's just, it, it makes, I think as a person, but especially as a woman, we sort of, I think, have it in our DNA to kind of go with the flow, to be doing two different things at once, whether or not you've been a mother or not. I mm-hmm. helped care for my mm-hmm. parents when they were ailing. And, and I think it's in us to be able to do more than one thing at the same time successfully. Right, right. We're, we're great multitaskers. Yeah. We're running out of time, but I just no, want to end. No. I, I want always to... so much fun. I can't believe it. Okay, go on. Do you forgive the sort of drama about this. Do you have hope? I have hope. I have hope. I I live in a small town. I live in Weehawken, New Jersey. It's 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 not really diverse. There's still a lot of Italian American families that have lived here for generations, and we're right across the street from Union City which has got a very big Cuban population. Right, right. And I'm one of, I think, a handful of Black families or people living here. Having said that, last Tuesday, I had a Zoom conference that I had to attend. But at the same time of the conference call, they were having a vigil up on Boulevard East, which is one of our main drags, uh, in support of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And I left the Zoom meeting a few minutes early and ran up the street, not knowing what to expect. And when I got to the top of the hill... As far as the eye could see, there were all of these people, all of these people from Weehawken and from Union City and, and, you know, holding signs and the police were there and the mayor was there and I cried. I mm. was so touched and, and I love my neighborhood and it meant a lot to me and I've seen stuff like that going on all over the country and in places like like Newark, where there yeah. had been such trouble in the past right. to have a peaceful right. march, and a place like Waco, Texas, where Branch Davidian was some Hello. years ago, mm-hmm. but at least now we know that Chip and Joanna are there. And they have <laughs> well, a, well, they own the they city. They own the town. Yeah. But to see all of these different groups of people happening, and yes, there were riots, and I think some of them were organized, and I think they were they had nothing to do with the marchers, but there's also always knuckleheads. I just feel like like I was saying before, there's a, a, a different kind of understanding that's happening now. And I'll tell you one of the most powerful moments 
in the last few days for me was uh, last week at one of the George Floyd memorials when Reverend Al had the audience stand in silence for eight minutes and whatever it was. 46 seconds. 46 Mm -hmm. seconds. And you realize what an incredible amount of time that is. Yeah. And the thought that someone could keep their knee on someone's neck while they moaned and begged for their life and cried out for their mother, that this guy could do that with his hands in his pockets, staring right at a video camera with absolutely no shame. It's just, it's so egregious and so horrible. And you're so grateful that somebody captured it on video because there wasn't video of poor Clifford Glover when he got killed. And there's not been video of so many things. And then there has been video of so many things and things still haven't changed. I also think that the convergence of George Floyd and the the young man that was killed while he was jogging. Oh, Ahmaud Arbery. And that the bird watcher in Central Park who only said to this woman, can you please put your dog on a leash? leash. And she looked at him like, you have the temerity to tell me to follow the rules and got in his face and said, I'm going to call the police and tell them an African-American is. And I thought, what you know that she even said African American and was treating him like an N was also yes, so yes, interesting. Yes. But to see all those things at once, I, I also think maybe that one, two, three punch was another wake up call of macro and micro aggression against people of color. And I, I, I mean, you know, I'm not somebody that always thinks everything happens for a reason. And this, but I, I do have hope. I just, at the same time, I'm scared that uh, this crew is going to do everything they can to suppress black and brown people's rights to vote. I mean, you saw the lines that were happening. Um, I guess it was yesterday. Oh, my God. And there's a guy who went and checked out some of the suburban areas. No lines, no problems. Every You know, people Mm -hmm. in and out in two minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty egregious what's going on. But I feel like if we really show up in numbers and really make our voices heard and continue to just be aware and, and understand what we can and what we can't understand. We're going to be in a much better place. It's just, like I said before, like we both said, it's staggering to think that it had to get to this level. It is staggering with all the sadness that's going on, but maybe that's what it took. It's just right, like, for us to oh, turn God. Yeah, that's the way we have to. Yeah. So I do. And, yeah. And that's great. That's great. Nancy Giles. Sandy Thanks Klein, so you're Kirk. the best. Oh, I'm so glad we ran into each other on the street corner that day. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a mutual admiration. No, society. it's true, and I just have to let people know. You you introduced yourself to me, and you said who you were, and I was like, Sandy Klein, Sandy Klein from Ten Ten Wins, Sandy Klein. <laughs> I'm Sandy Klein, because I love voices, and I've always loved you guys on the. I love radio people, and so it was my honor to meet oh, you. And I'm so glad so you reached nice. out and said hi to me. I was so starstruck. I said, Oh my God, that's Nancy Giles. Oh, you stop know, it. and should I go up? And all those years ago, and I am still, uh, well, I'm, you know, I have an Nancy Jaws addiction, but I certainly oh, stop. Who are the Sunday. fools that don't like when people stop them and say they like their work? Who's idiotic enough to get well, an attitude about that? We'll, well have to do another show. We'll do an episode about that. Okay, we will. <laughs> Nancy Giles, have a great day. You too, Sandy Klein. And Thank we'll you. We'll be in touch for sure. Okay. Giving you a big virtual hug. And back at you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. <laughs>